Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 3 tonight. Prepare our hearts to receive God's word. And let's uh, go ahead and read chapter 3. It's, uh, I think, 22 verses. Yeah. But we'll read through this together. We're only going to cover the one chapter tonight. There's quite a bit here for us. So as we begin... Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place, take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up from that land to a a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he said, I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob appeared to me saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites 
and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. Then they will heed your voice, and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the kingdom of Egypt, and you shall say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us, and now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, silver, articles of gold and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so shall you plunder the Egyptians. So Lord, thank you for the reading of your word this evening, and as always, we trust that you will minister your word to us in such a way, Lord, that we will be not only encouraged, but perhaps even awed and overwhelmed and amazed. We seek your face now. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we covered the first two chapters last week, we got our introduction in chapter one uh, into Moses' birth as he was brought into this world, certainly by God, and the miraculous circumstances around his birth, and then how God himself allowed and used the midwives to be God's instruments in protecting the Hebrew children. And we saw, of course, how the Pharaoh at the time was angry and uh, much like others throughout the generations, tried to exterminate the bloodline of the Messiah through the killing of the male children, the Hebrew children. And we saw in chapter 2, as Moses was born, he was taken into the house of the Pharaoh's daughter, and that also was a miraculous event where God uniquely guided him to that spot where she took him in, and he became the child of Pharaoh's daughter. So before this point in time, we were never told Moses' Hebrew name, but then Pharaoh's daughter called him Moses, which means drawn out or drawn out of the water. And so we then come to verse 10, where it says she named him. Now in verse 11, we find out that he has grown. So between verse 10 and verse 11, 40 years have passed. Moses has grown up. And as he has grown and he has graduated from, if you will, the University of Egypt, he's gone through all of the incredible training and education, uh, educated in all, all sorts of things, the arts, technology, everything that was available to them in those days. Uh, he was raised as a son of Pharaoh. Really, he was the grandson in, in that sense of Pharaoh. And so we saw there toward the end of chapter 2 that Moses somehow knew, and we went back and looked at New Testament scriptures, that Moses somehow knew that God had called him to be a deliverer of his people. But we saw as he uh, lifted up his hand when he saw an Egyptian harshly treating one of his fellow brethren, that he then rose up and killed that Egyptian. And then the next day he was walking and saw two of his brethren 
fighting amongst one another. And so he says, why are you doing this, your brethren? And they said, what are you going to do to us? Kill us like you did the Egyptian yesterday? And of course, Moses thought that no one saw what he had done because he looked this way and that, we're told, but did not realize that there was someone other than the Lord watching him. And so he had to flee for his life. And so he fled out to the desert, and then we're told there at the end of chapter 2 that he had come uh, to the house of Jethro, to the priest of Midian. And that's where we find the story tonight picking up in in chapter 3, verse 1. But just as there was a gap between chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 of 40 years, so is there, as we come to chapter 3, verse 1, another 40 years has passed. So Moses is now 80 years old by the beginning of chapter 1. So here we are. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. So out in the desert, uh, it is not uncommon on a bright, hot day for where everything is very, very dry. And of course, there's no rain, and the water doesn't really uh, stay around anyway when it does rain because it just runs off, as we're sort of seeing right now in the news, right, with California and the other southwestern states as they're getting so much rain and basically it's just flooding everywhere. When the sun was hot on this particular day, uh, some kind of a bush was caught on fire. And so Moses no doubt had seen this. Again, this was a common occurrence, but on this particular day, it didn't just incinerate and burn up in a couple of minutes. This was a bush that caught on fire, but it burned, as we might think of, say, gas logs burning or maybe a candle in the sense that the flame just continued and the bush itself was not consumed, we're told there in verse 2. And it says in verse 2, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So this was not just an angel of the Lord, we're told that it was the angel of the Lord. And you may notice in your Bible there, uh, the word angel is capitalized and the word Lord is all caps. And when you see the Lord in all capital letters, that is referring to the covenant name of God, to the name of Yahweh. So the angel of the Lord, this is most definitely a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Some would call it a theophany, others a Christophany. So God often appeared to people throughout the scriptures. We saw in Genesis chapter 12 when God called Abram that he appeared to Abram and spoke to him uh, directly and then told him what he would do. I will bless you and make you a great, your name great and you shall be a blessing and I'll make you a great nation there in Genesis chapter 12. He spoke to Isaac directly, just as he spoke to Abraham directly. And then he spoke to Jacob uh, in Genesis 32. And then Jacob was left alone uh, and a man, capitalized, wrestled with him until the breaking of day, yet another pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. The Lord appeared to Joseph in dreams. He appeared to Samuel 
as an audible voice during the night when he was a young boy. And so many times out in the wilderness, God appeared to and spoke with David. And thus, we have the Psalms as the Lord met with David and inspired that holy scripture. In Elijah, 1 Kings chapter 18, uh, again, the Lord came to Elijah and then presented to him truth and commands on multiple occasions, uh, 1 Kings 18, 1 Kings 19, etc. Daniel was in prayer seeking God, and God came to him in visions. Zechariah in the New Testament, during prayer in the temple, the angel Gabriel appeared to him. That, was, of course, was not Jesus, but the point here is how God appeared and spoke to people. Mary, the mother of Jesus, again, Gabriel appeared to her. Jesus, Jesus's earthly father, rather, Joseph, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Peter went up on the rooftop in Acts 10 of Simon the Tanner's house, and the Lord spoke to him directly. And Paul in Acts 9, Jesus, of course, met him that day on the road to Damascus. And then multiple other times, the Lord manifest his presence to Paul while ministering at Corinth in Acts 18. In Acts 23, as they were traveling on their journey to Rome, Acts 23, 11, it says, uh, but the following night the Lord stood by him and said, be of good cheer, Paul, as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. And again in Acts 27, so the point of this is very simply that God I think, was fond of appearing to people and speaking to them. So as he appears here now to Moses, Moses, verse 3, said to himself, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. There are four very specific things, I think, that we need to see here in this passage tonight if we see nothing else, and I hope we see a lot. First, he says, turn aside. I will now turn aside and see this great sight. And I think with Moses' encounter with the Lord, with Jesus himself, this becomes a bit of a lesson for us as we encounter the Lord, as we seek to meet with the Lord. Turn aside. Verse 4, when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. So God called to him, so the second thing would be to listen up, to listen to and for the voice of God. And then in verse 5, he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Number three, strip down. Get rid of things that are unholy in the presence of God, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Then number four, which I think really the rest of the chapter kind of speaks to, is to be filled or to be filled with the Lord. So turn aside, listen up, strip down, and be filled. So in verse three again, when Moses said, I will now turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush does not burn, he stopped to turn his attention to God. And I submit to you that this is something that we need to take note of. We need to turn aside. We need to deliberately turn aside and listen to the Lord and seek his face. Moses did that, and of course, what was calling him, what had caught his attention, was this burning bush. And of course, as we were told there in verse 2, that 
it was very clear that it was the angel of the Lord. So there was something more than just a phenomenon, meaning a bush that was on fire that caught his eye. It was the presence of the Lord that caught his, his attention. In verse 4, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, so God was watching him to see how he would react to that situation. God called to him from the midst of the bush and called his name, Moses, Moses. Now, if we can in any way, shape, or form try to put ourselves for a moment in Moses' sandals, you're out by yourself with a flock of sheep in a remote, deserted place of the desert, and a bush catches on fire, and it's just in fuego, but it's not consumed, and a voice starts speaking with you, you might question yourself and say, am I having heat stroke? Have I lost my mind? I often think the sheep talk to me. Maybe it's uh, just me imagining something here. But that's not what happened. He immediately responded to this voice. And again, I think it was because it was the angel of God, because it was the voice of Jesus, the voice of God coming to him through Jesus, this angel, this appearance of the angel. And so Moses answered and said, here I am. So it's always good when you do hear God's voice, whether it be audible or in your head or as you're reading scripture, I think it's polite just like it would be to any human being perhaps to answer back and say, here I am, Lord. I'm here. Speak to me. Notice that the Lord didn't speak until he saw that Moses had directed his attention to him. And I would submit to you that often God's word doesn't touch our heart the way that it might until we intentionally give it our attention. So then he said, verse 5, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. As was the ancient practice of that day all the way into Jesus' day, when someone came into another person's house, they would take off their sandals, and often a servant, of course, would wash their feet. In this particular case, as Moses was drawing near the place where the bush was burning, when God says to him, take off, take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground, I'd like to suggest to you that he was entering God's house, and God's house was where God's presence was. And so many times we see throughout the the scriptures, especially the Psalms, the presence of the Lord fills the whole earth. So anywhere that you you tread with the the sole of your foot is the house of the Lord. But on this occasion, in this appearance here, in the burning bush, God says to him, strip down. So remember that as you approach God, as you approach his presence, that his presence is holiness. And we need to be aware of that. And we need to treat God with the utmost of respect. We need to treat him with the utmost of holiness. And not treat him maybe like we do a family member where we run in and say, hey, look, sorry, I'm in a hurry. I'll see you tonight. I got to go. I don't have time. See you later. When we treat the Lord that way, as I'm sure all of us do or have at some point in time, We are not really stripping down, meaning we are not slowing down long enough to honor his presence and his holiness. 
And I think that's important to understand as we come to the, the next section, which is be filled with the Lord. And so God begins to speak to him. And chapter 3 and the first half of chapter 4 comprise of God's words, God's not only call, he had sort of called Moses back in chapter 2, but he began to speak to Moses and now to tell him what that calling was. And that it was more than just, okay, I just want you to be a deliverer, I want you to go break up fights or to protect someone when a bully is there. God is about to tell him that I want you to represent me, I want you to represent my presence, not only to my people, but also to my enemies. Moreover, verse 6, God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. So I think the combination of, again, knowing the presence of the Lord, and then hearing the voice of God, and hearing that voice caused him to hide his face and to look toward the ground and to not want to look at the voice, to not want to look at the bush. And the Lord said, verse 7, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. Now remember we saw back at the end of chapter 2, verse 25, and God looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them. Now God, some translations say, and God remembered them. We talked about this last week, but just to remind you, God didn't forget. It's sort of like when you're multitasking, right? Maybe you've got something on the stove cooking and the phone just rang and you're on the phone. You didn't forget about it. You're aware of it and you know something's got to be watched, but you know, you've kind of got your attention on different things. And certainly the Lord never forgets. He never gets distracted. But in this case, you get the sense here, at least I do, that God's timing to go and to rescue his people had not come to the the proper time. And God's looking at lots of things that we aren't specifically told about here. How desperate have the people become? Are they ready to look to God? Because he knows that the heart of people, the heart of mankind, is stubborn. And we get kind of used to our pain. We get used to our misery. In fact, we'll find later as God has delivered the children of Israel and they are out in the wilderness on the other side of the Red Sea, that they begin to complain and say, Lord, do we kind of like to go back because we like the good food there and we're kind of tired of the manna. You know, maybe the stripes on our back weren't so bad. We just kind of, we kind of knew what every day was going to be and how it was going to go. And this is the way we are as humans. We learn to live with a certain level of pain and misery and, you know, our desire to not have change in our lives sometimes overrules our better judgment. So God waited for his people to get desperate. He hears their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows, and he sees their pain and their suffering. And we need to be reminded that God loves his people. He's watching over his people. He cares about his people. He knows the sorrows of his people, not just these two to three million Hebrews who are in Egypt. But over all time, the scriptures are replete with references to God looking upon his people and caring for his people. And so tonight, I would want you to know 
that God is watching over you and he cares for you and he sees your sorrows and he sees your pain. And he says here in verse 8, and, and again, as we read these things, let's not get caught up in the fact that God uses what we would call anthropomorphic language, meaning he speaks to us as we need to hear it. He speaks in human terms so that we can understand him. He says, so I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land to a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites, the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. So remember, 40 years earlier, when Moses said, I'm their deliverer, I need to take action, it's time for me to get going. He did something in the flesh that could only be accomplished in the spirit. And he, at that time, wasn't seeking God, certainly not the way he is at this moment. And so 40 years earlier, when he was 40 years old, it was not God's timing for him to rise up and to be the deliverer. In fact, he knew nothing about being the deliverer. God had not yet commissioned him to be them, their deliverer. He had only called him, but he had not commissioned him. And so God had to take him out to the backside of the desert for 40 years to teach, them, teach him that only God himself can be the deliverer. Moses was just going to be the, the person or the instrument through whom he would work, but God himself was the deliverer, and I think that was Moses' mistake. He took the call of God to mean that he himself was to be the deliverer, but he was not the deliverer. God was the deliverer. Come now, verse 10, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. You see, the first time Moses went to the people, but he had not yet been sent. Here, God is saying, I will send you. And as God sends him, he goes with God's command. He goes with God's authority. And we see a principle over and over and over that God's command is God's enabling. Moses had not yet received that command 40 years earlier. And so something we have to learn in our lives, even though it's hard, that waiting can often be hard. But we have to wait for God to speak, for God to tell us what we need to do and when and where and how we need to do it. If we go ahead of God, if we act out of rashness and impatience, it will result in disaster. But God, verse 11, excuse me, Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. You see, 40 years earlier, he was just like, man, let's go. I'll take on the Egyptians. You, get over here. And he killed the guy. But now Moses, in a sense, has a, a proper view, a view of humility. But he's now kind of gone the other direction to a place of unbelief. And Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? 
and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. You see, it's okay to understand who we are in the light of who God is, but the question Moses asked is, who am I? But remember something very important. The question is not, who am I or who are you? The question is, who is God? Because only he is able to do these things. We are nothing more than his children, his servants. It's not who I am, but who God is that matters. Who I am and who you are doesn't matter. It's who God is and who he wants to be. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? You see, God's going to speak to him and give him the command. Not only just call him, but to give him the instruction. And now it's vitally important that Moses hear those instructions with faith and understand that God's not just saying, I'm giving you a task to do, but I'm asking you to go in faith, listen to me, and obey my voice. Yes, there's an initial commissioning, but you're going to have to listen to my voice over and over and over day by day as we walk through this together. Remember when the angel spoke to Mary in Luke chapter 1. And as the angel spoke to her and said that she would be impregnated by the Holy Spirit and that the Son of God would be born by her and that commissioning of the angel to her, in Luke 1.37, he says to her, for with God nothing will be impossible. Something Moses needed to learn. In John 6.63, we find these words of Jesus. It is the spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. The words that God is speaking to Moses and the words that God speaks to us through his word are life. Galatians 6.3, for if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. We do have to have a proper view of ourselves before God. But we need to understand that God wants to do it in and through us. In 2 Chronicles chapter 14, we find this amazing statement by King Asa. And Asa cried out to the Lord his God and said, Lord, it is nothing for you to help, whether with many or with those who have no power. Help us, O Lord, our God, for we rest on you. And in your name we go against this multitude, O Lord. You are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. He had the right idea. He understood Man can come against us, but they can't go against God. And his prayer was, God, don't let them prevail against you. And then in Ecclesiastes 3.14, I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him. So in verse 12, as he continues to speak with Moses, so he said, God said, I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now, Moses didn't know as God spoke this when that time would come. He had no sense of the timing of how long it would be from that moment when God was speaking to him 
to when he would have led the people out of Egypt and they would be there at that mountain worshiping God. He had no sense of that timing whatsoever, but God is telling him, I will be with you, and this will be the sign. When you end up back at this very place, you will know that I have fulfilled my word to you. And so often, isn't that the way God speaks and leads? When he told Abraham to get out from among his people, he said, and and you should go to a place that I will show you. He didn't tell Abraham how long the journey would be. He didn't tell him where that place would be. He just said, you go, you listen, you obey, and I will walk with you and show you as you go. Too often, we have this idea that we need the plan. And we need the plan unfolded. We need to understand the time and how long it's going to take. And when certain things are going to occur. That may be true in business, but it's not true in our walk with God. Because God wants us to walk by faith, not by sight. And so he will give us the general direction and the general counsel. But it's up to us to obey and to listen and to follow what God has said. So Moses said, who am I? God said, I'll be with you. Then Moses said to God, indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, um, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? So now Moses, maybe on the surface asking a good question, well, what am I supposed to say to him, God? So so I go, let's just say I do this. You kind of kind of read between the lines here. What do you want me to say to him when I get there? So once again, what's he doing? He's kind of fast forwarding to, well, what am I supposed to do when I get there? God already told him, you go and I'll be with you. And isn't this just like us? So God, if you just give me a little more information, I might be more willing to obey you. Moses said to God, indeed, when I come, what should I say to them? The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And then they say to me, what is his name? What am I supposed to say? How's this going to play out, God? I don't, I don't get it. And God said to Moses in verse 14, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This seems a little strange to our ears. When you take this apart, it simply means I am. There's no secret. God often revealed himself to people by giving them a title or a name. When God revealed himself to Abraham in the encounter with Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14, uh, he called on the God Most High. Abraham later in Genesis 17 encountered the Almighty God. In Genesis 21, Abraham came to know the Lord as the everlasting God. And then later in Genesis 22, the Lord will provide. These were all names of God. Hagar, in Genesis 16, encountered, you are the God who sees. And Jacob, in Genesis 33, met El Elohi Israel. And in Genesis 35, he met met El Bethel. All of these names had certain meanings to them at that moment in time. So I want to read something to you here. 
God tells Moses his name is I am because God simply is. There never was a time when God did not exist or a time when he will cease to exist. The name I am has within it the idea of aseity, meaning that God is completely independent. He relies on nothing for life or existence. God doesn't need anybody or anything. Life is in himself. Also inherent in the idea behind the name I am is the sense that God is the, quote, becoming one. God becomes whatever is lacking in our time and in our need. The name I am invites us to fill in the blank to meet our need when we are in the darkness. Jesus says, for example, in those cases, I am the light. And when we are hungry, he says, I am the bread of life. And when we are defenseless, he says, I am the good shepherd. You see, God is the becoming one. He becomes what we need when we need it. The name I am is a divine title that Jesus often took upon himself, clearly identifying himself all the way back with this passage of scripture as the voice from the burning bush. In John 8, he said, therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins for if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. I am meaning I am he. And if you read in those passages, you'll see the I am is capitalized as a reference back to the name of God here in Genesis 3. Again, later in John 8, Jesus said to them, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am he, that I am, excuse me, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my father taught me, I speak these things. A little later in that same passage, John 8, Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. John 13, now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am. And in John 18, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, whom are you seeking? This is in the garden when they came to get him. And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am. And that's when they all fell backwards at the power of the name of God. So we need to understand that God goes beyond our existence. And even as we attempt with human words to describe his infinite existence and that he has always been and he never, will never cease to exist and that God has need of nothing from no one. It's something that we need to grasp to the best of our ability because when we think about it, this is sort of like an infinite loop. It never ends. You, 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 there's no answer other than he is. He just is. So God himself saying, I am the answer. It's not what I'm going to do. It's just me. It's my presence. And when he said to Moses, I will be with you, we need to understand that God has said those same words to us, hasn't he, over and over and over through his word, through the Psalms, through Proverbs, through creation, throughout the New Testament, over and over and over, I am with you. Jesus, in leaving the earth, said, I'm going to send the Spirit 
the spirit of truth, the comforter, the paraclete, the one who's called alongside to help. Who's the paraclete? Who's the Holy Spirit? But the third person of the Trinity, the very presence of God in our lives. So Jesus has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. It's something that we need to learn that the presence of God is everywhere at all times, but also that he says, I am with you. Moreover, verse 15, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared to me saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. So now at 80 years old, he's to take this message and to go back to God's people and to tell them all these things. Now imagine, if you can imagine this, it's just my own kind of strange idea, but you're going back to your, I guess it would be, for the sake of discussion, maybe 62nd high school reunion. And you go in and the party's going on and people are there and you say, excuse me, if you don't mind, can I borrow the mic for a moment? And then you stand up and you say, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you to redeem you, to call you out of the, the poverty and the slavery that you live in and God wants you to follow me as I lead you back to a land filled with milk and honey. People would have you certified. They would laugh at the beginning, and then they would probably get angry at you because you said such a thing. But you see, God has already said to Moses in response to his objections, well, who am I, and if I go, what am I supposed to say, and I'm going to represent you. You want me, let me get this straight, you want me to represent you, God? And to tell people that I'm your representative? And God said, yes. I'm going with you. I'm going to speak to you. I'm going to speak through you. In verse 18 here, listen to the comfort he gives to Moses. Then they will heed your voice. And you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt. And you shall say to him. So first, I want you to go back to your people. Now remember what happened 40 years earlier. He didn't have a good reception at all with the Egyptians when he realized he was a Hebrew. And he sort of began to leave his family that raised him and to say, I want to go back and identify with my people. That was a big no-no. He rejected his family, so to speak. And then as he went to the people who were his people, they weren't ready to accept him. So now 40 years later, God's telling him to go back to a people, both people groups had rejected him. I want you to not only go to your people, I also want you to go to the king of Egypt, to Pharaoh, and say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now, the Egyptians were polytheistic. 
and we're going to find out as the plagues begin to come, that God begins to address every one of their major gods and shows them to be false gods. Please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But then God says, just to prepare him, I'm sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. So as you go, the king of Egypt is not going to release you. He's not going to listen to you. And I imagine Moses might be thinking at that point, then tell me again why we're doing this. But he says in verse 20, so I will stretch out my hand and I will strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. So I'm going to send you back. You're going to be met with resistance. And then I'm going to have to turn up the volume. I'm going to have to plug in the power. I'm going to have to crank it up a little bit. And he says in verse 21, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So not only, God's saying, not only am I going to deal with the king of Egypt with the Pharaoh, but because the people of Egypt have come to, to despise you, I'm going to give you, the Hebrew people, favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So God's now going above and beyond. I'm sending you, and I'm going to do all these things, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to show the mightiness of my power. And I'm going to give you favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed. And then look in verse 22. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, and so shall you plunder the Egyptians. So remember back as Moses was born in chapter 2. As he was born, and he was supposed to be killed because he was a male Hebrew baby, that God protected him. And then God let him go into the house of the Pharaoh's daughter. And then he got him to be raised there in the Pharaoh's house. So he got an all-expenses-paid raising from childhood to adulthood. And then remember, as his sister came out of the weeds sort of at the appropriate time, he said, excuse me, would you like me to go get a Hebrew woman to care for the child? It was, of course, his large, his bigger sister. And as she goes and gets her mother, then the, the Pharaoh's daughter pays the mother to raise her own son. So not only did God deliver and protect her son, but he provided for them everything they needed throughout their entire life up till the time he was 40 years old. What an amazing thing. And now God is telling him, when I actually deliver you and your people from the hand of the Pharaoh and from the hand of the Egyptians, you're basically going to walk out with pretty much everything they own. You're going to plunder. You're going to walk out with their clothes on your back you're going to have their jewelry, their gold, their silver, and I'm just going to give it to you. And all you have to do to them is to, to ask and to say, hey, I like those earrings, give them to me. And doesn't this sort of remind you, for example, when Jesus said in the New Testament, hey, when you go into the, the city, Peter and, and John, and you see a donkey tied over here, just grab him and bring him to me. And if anybody says anything to you, just say the Lord has need of it. And Jesus did these kinds of things over and over. Hey, we need to pay taxes, Jesus. We don't have any money. We'll go fishing. When you catch the fish, 
and you pull him out of the water, just reach into his mouth, and when you find the money, go take that money and pay, which is enough to pay taxes for all of us. Jesus did these things over and over and over. And we're going to find out as we get into the beginning part of chapter 4, as we sort of continue this story, that God is going to do wonderful and amazing and miraculous things, and this is even before he gets there. And so God, as he speaks to him, lets him know in his encounter at the bush, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to be with you. Everything I'm telling you, as crazy as it sounds, I'm going to do. I'm going to go before you. I'm going to go with you. I'm going to be behind you. And you don't have to be afraid. And you don't have to worry. Because all you have to do is listen to my voice, keep your eyes fixed on me, and obey what I tell you to do. How hard can that be? And yet, isn't this what he says to us? Keep your eyes fixed on me, listen to me, and obey my words. God, thank you this evening for your word. Thank you for ministering to us and speaking to us. And as we continue to just turn our hearts toward you and listen, we trust that you will speak to us. And Lord, help us with our obstinate hearts, our unwillingness so often to do what you say and to obey you simply because either we don't want to or we're just not ready to give up our sin or we still somehow are deceived into thinking that our way is better than yours. God, help us. Help us to be humble. Help us to listen. Lord, that we might listen up, turn aside, strip down, and be filled with everything that you have for us. Help us, Lord, to have simplicity of obedience, simplicity of hearing, to lay aside the questioning and the need to figure everything out and the need to control and just to trust, to let go, and to let you work. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.